Well, thank you, Craig, for reading God's Word for us this morning. Uh, Craig McClun is uh, actually one of our denominational leaders, and it's great to have Craig with us. He's the uh, Mission Network Director for the EFCA Reach Global. And so he works with missions pastors and church leadership to uh, create global mission strategy to fulfill the Great Commission. And so we're really glad to have Craig here with us this morning. We figured with a passage with that many um, tough words, we needed a denominational leader to come and read it for us. Uh, so thanks, Craig, for doing that. Um, but Craig's connection to Christ community is actually uh, a lot deeper than just being one of our denominational leaders. Craig, uh, a number of years ago, was actually a pastor on staff at Christ community. And uh, he has a special connection to the Brookside campus. If you know the McClunns, uh, Claire is our associate pastor and her husband, Adam. Uh, Craig is Adam's dad, so Claire's father-in-law. So Craig and Donna are here this morning, and uh, be sure to greet them if you get a chance to after the service. We're really glad to have you guys here with us, Craig and Donna. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, to be with us. So as we look at this passage, um, I'd love to ask for the Spirit's help in understanding it. So let's pause and pray this morning. Um, Father in heaven, we are so thankful uh, for this passage of Scripture, um, this chapter of the Bible that you've given us. We're thankful for your word. And uh, we do ask now that the Spirit that was poured out um, in that moment, that same Spirit, would illumine your word to us um, even today, now 2,000 years later, that it would make it come alive Uh, for each one of us, and that uh, it would change us um, and renew us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, where do most of the stories uh, and movies about Jesus' life uh, end? Well, most of the stories, most of the movies about Jesus' life, they tend to end either with the crucifixion, or, or maybe if you're lucky, you get some of the resurrection in there as well, right? So Jesus Christ Superstar, um, whether you've seen the, the play or um, the, the movie, right? It, it ends with Jesus' uh, death. You don't even get the um, resurrection there. Um, maybe you've seen uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ uh, there, really focuses on Jesus' death, and you actually do get a glimpse of the resurrection, Um, at the very end of The Passion of the Christ, but then the movie's over, right? You get this kind of shadowy kind of thing coming out of the the grave, and then it rolls the credits. But as we look at how God tells the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, um, Jesus is adamant that the story after his resurrection is far from over. In fact, the resurrection really is just a beginning. It's the new beginning of all that God is doing You see, Jesus didn't just come to die and rise and then leave. No, he sets his disciples on a mission. And the mission that he gives them is more than just hang in there till you die or until I come back. No, the mission is much more encompassing than that. And what were Jesus' final words before he ascends into heaven? Does anyone remember these? Jesus' final words before he ascends into heaven are, we find them in Acts chapter 1, back a little bit earlier than what Craig read, in 1.8. And says this, but Jesus says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus tells his disciples to wait and to pray. Because the Spirit is coming to fulfill the next act of God's story. Jesus has ascended into heaven and now the Spirit is going to descend on the church and empower the church for mission. God is pouring out his spirit on the church, which makes the local church the hope of the world. Which makes the local church the hope of the world. At Christ's community, we unapologetically believe that the local church, as God designed it, and that's the key phrase, the local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world. But that can only be true 
if the church is empowered by the Spirit, the local church is the hope of the world as God designed it, only if it's empowered by the Spirit. And so why do we say this? I mean, why would we say that the local church is the hope of the world? If, that's kind of a bit presumptuous if the church was, was our idea. But as we look at the Bible, the Bible is clear that the local church is God's idea. The local church isn't merely a human organization. It isn't a, just a social club or, or a therapy group or a cause or a social action group. No, the, the church is the very people of God. The church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the building which is built on the foundation of Christ who, who is the cornerstone of the church. The church is God's idea. And if you were with us last week, as Kevin pointed out, the church belongs to Jesus, the Jesus church. But the church can only be these things. The church can only be the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the building of Christ. If it's empowered by the Spirit. The church is dead without the Spirit. If you're taking notes this morning, maybe just jot that down, that the church is dead without the Spirit. And Jesus tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1, he says, wait in Jerusalem. And he says, don't even try to fill out this great commission, this, this commission I've given to you to be my witnesses. Don't even try to do that until the Spirit comes. And I, I think Jesus knows. He spent the last three years with his people. And he knows that apart from divine intervention of him being there with them, they screw this up. And so he says, don't even try to do this until the Spirit comes. Go and wait and pray in Jerusalem. When the Spirit comes, then you will be empowered to do this work. And so this morning as we look at Acts chapter 2, we're going to see kind of three main things. We're going to see who the Spirit is, what the Spirit empowers the church to do, and then how we receive the Spirit. So who the Spirit is, what he empowers the church to do, and lastly, how do we receive him? And so if you have a Bible this morning or grab one of the ones that are in the pews, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. It's on uh, page 909, I think it was, that uh, it's there in the Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, and then Acts. And as you're turning there, I just want to point out that this is our first message in our Open Here series uh, that we've been going through in the book of Acts. So this is our first message in the book of Acts. And Open Here is what we've been calling our um, effort together as a church to begin to develop this practice of daily Bible reading. We've been doing it since, since January. And if you're newer and you want to find out more about what Open Here is all about, if you just Google Christ Community plus Open Here, you'll find a website that will give you all the details on that. And Luke, of the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And in fact, Acts is really the second part of of what is really one book, the book of Luke-Acts. Luke is writing these um, together. And as we read Acts, it's important to remember that Acts, like the Gospels, is a historical narrative. That is, it's recording what happened in history. And this is particularly important to remember as we read Acts, because sometimes our tendency as a church today is when we read the book of Acts is to think, um, to treat it almost like just a a manual, a how-to for church, or to see it as a picture of exactly what the church should look like today. But the historical narratives of Acts are, are primarily descriptive rather than prescriptive. They're primarily descriptive rather than prescriptive. What do I mean by that? I mean that primarily they describe what happened in history rather than, than prescribing, telling us exactly what we should be doing in the present. Now, 
as soon as I say that, I also want in the same breath to say, now this doesn't mean that we can't learn anything from Acts about what the church should look like today or how it should work. Far from it. Um, Gar- Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart point this out in their extremely helpful little book, which I'd highly recommend to all of you. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. If you're newer to the Bible, like, I don't really understand how do I get, how do I understand the Bible? Their little book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, is great. And in that, on the section on Acts, they write this. They said, nevertheless, we believe that much of Acts is intended by Luke to serve as a model. But the model is not so much, and this is key, in the specifics as in the overall picture. Luke, therefore, probably intended the ongoing church should be like them, like the church in Acts, but in a larger sense, not modeling itself after any specific example. So in Acts, we have a wide variety of churches that function in a wide variety of different ways. So it provides a model, but in, the, in generalities rather than in specifics. So as we pick up the story of Acts 2, if you've turned there, what do we find? Well, the disciples in obedience to Jesus go to Jerusalem and they wait. And they're waiting there for a few weeks. If we kind of know a little bit of the timeline, um, this story takes place about probably three weeks after Jesus restores Peter. If you were with us last week, that's the text we look at. So this is about three weeks after that. And Jesus' followers are spending time praying together and waiting together as Jesus instructed them to do. And then the day of Pentecost arrives. Now, Pentecost is, uh, it comes from a, a Greek word that just means the 50th day or the 50th day um, after um, the, uh, the Passover. And so this was a, fe- a feast, a festival in Israel's history um, where they would gather to celebrate the spring harvest. And so this is the, the day of Pentecost. It's 50 days after um, Passover and they're getting ready to celebrate this feast. And about 120 followers of Jesus are gathered together in one place and they're probably preparing that morning uh, for this feast. It's going to be a big celebration. And I almost imagine the scene is a bit like uh, a house on Thanksgiving morning. Everyone's busy cooking and getting the house ready. It's full of, of great smells and people are together and they're enjoying um, their, one another's company and getting ready to celebrate this meal later on in the day. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, this sound out of heaven, it sounds like a, a, a windstorm, comes into the house and apparently around the house as well because people outside hear it. And all of a sudden, along with this windstorm, something like tongues of fire, it's not fire exactly, but something best Luke can describe it for us, something like tongues of fire come down and they rest on each one of them. And fire in the Old Testament represents God's presence and his holiness and purity. There's a sign that God's presence is there with them. And what happens next, the text tells us, is that they are filled with the Spirit— And they immediately start speaking in other languages. And all the Jews from around the Roman Empire who are visiting Jerusalem for this feast, there's people who've traveled from all over the empire to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast of Pentecost. They're there in Jerusalem and they hear the sound and they gather around and they hear these Galileans, these kind of backwater locals as far as the Roman Empire was concerned, speaking their languages. I mean, Craig read for us that big list of people from all over the Roman Empire And they hear these Galileans speaking in their language. And the text says they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're full of new wine. Now before we go any further here, we need to stop and ask, who is the Spirit that has filled them? Who is the Spirit that has filled them? There's two things we need to notice here. First, the Spirit is the promised helper. First, the Spirit is the promised helper. 
The Apostle Paul in his letters to the Galatians and the Ephesians actually kind of uses this title of, of promised almost as a title for the Holy Spirit. He says in, in Galatians 3.14, the promised spirit. And then in Ephesians 1.13, he says the promised Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit is one who is promised. Jesus, the Father, even John the Baptist promised that the Holy Spirit would come. And earlier in Acts chapter 1, in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says this. He says, And while they were with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John the Bap- John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. But Acts chapter 1 is not the first place that we learn about the Spirit being promised. In fact, in John's gospel, in the gospel of John, the last section of it where Jesus is about to be crucified, he's spending his last time with the disciples in the upper room, this upper room discourse, this um, Passover celebration with his disciples, John records Jesus' farewell speech. And here he talks about at least four times this promise of the Spirit that's coming in John 14 through 16. These are some of the verses. Jesus says, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Then later on in chapter 14 again, the helper, who is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then John 15, 26, when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This is key. The Spirit always bears witness about Jesus. The Spirit is always pointing us to Jesus. And then finally, Jesus again says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's your advantage that I go away. Jesus says, It's actually better that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You see, Jesus was the disciples' sort of first helper, counselor, but now that he is going away, he promises to send another helper. But the promise of the Holy Spirit extends much further back than just John's gospel. You see, Jesus' sending of the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of many passages and promises in the Old Testament, including some that we read together, if you've been following along uh, with Open here earlier in the year. For example, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 36, this is one of the texts we read earlier in Open here. Ezekiel writes, he's speaking for God. God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God says, promises, I won't put my spirit within you. It's predicted back in Ezekiel. And as Peter argues later in his sermon here in Acts chapter 2, what is happening here on the day of Pentecost is at least a partial fulfillment of, of Joel 2, who's another prophet. So what we've seen in the past is that the, in the Old Testament is that the spirit came on people for specific tasks and specific purposes. But this is something new. The Spirit being given in a new and powerful way to all of the body of Christ. So that's the first thing. The Spirit is the promised helper. Who's the Spirit? He's the promised helper. Second, the Spirit is a divine person. Second, the Spirit is a divine person. Oftentimes I think we have a perception that Christian teaching about the Trinity, about who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is is just something that that theologians came up with who were kind of these academic folks and they just had a lot of time on their hands in the kind of the ivory tower of the academy and they had nothing better to do than come up with the doctrine of the Trinity to confuse all of us. 
But this couldn't be further from the truth. The, the Christian understanding of God as Trinity just came from a result of under, trying to understand who Jesus is, right? So the early Christians and the early pastors are looking at, they had Jesus, who they have come to believe is God, who's speaking to his Father. I mean, we have all these examples of Jesus praying to his Father, who's also God. And then Jesus also promising to send this Holy Spirit, who also seems to be God. And these early Christians and pastors are just trying to make sense of, of who Jesus is as one who prays to the Father and who promises to send the Spirit. I said a moment ago, the Spirit always points us to Jesus. So when you think about the Spirit, always think of Jesus. And when you think about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the church is teaching about the Holy Spirit, also always think about Jesus first. But then think about Basil of Caesarea. Probably not many of you heard of Basil of Caesarea, but Basil um, was a, a pastor and a theologian who lived in the 4th century AD. And Basil gave the church a great service by thinking deeply about who the Holy Spirit is as both God and as a, as a person, um, who, who's not just a force but has a person and a personality as part of the Godhead. And while we don't have time to look at all the passages this morning, a careful study of the Bible reveals that the Holy Spirit possesses the attributes of God he performs divine works. He is identified with the person and activity of the Godhead. He's given divine titles. And also the Spirit is a who, not an it. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is a who, not an it. He's, he's not just an impersonal force. This isn't kind of the, the Star Wars, may the force be with you, kind of this impersonal force that just pervades all things. No, the Spirit is a person. Spirit is involved in relationships. He can be grieved. He makes decisions about the distribution of spiritual gifts. He prays on our behalf. These are all things that persons, not forces, do. Actually, a great example, just as one example in the text of where we see both the Holy Spirit as God as well as clearly his personality is in Acts chapter 5. Again, if you've been following along and open here, this was the text that uh, was for today in the whole story plan and Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Spirit. And Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then later on, you have not lied to man, but to God. And here the Spirit is clearly seen as divine. He's seen as God and also as personal. I mean, you can't lie to a force, right? You can't lie to the ocean. You can't lie to the wind. No, you lie to people. So who is the Holy Spirit? That was our, our first question here. He's the promised helper and he's the divine third person of the Godhead. He's the promised helper, and he's the divine third person of the Godhead. But the next question we need to answer is, is what does the Spirit empower the church to do? And we said at the beginning that the local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world only if it is empowered by the Spirit. So what is it that the Spirit empowers the church to do? In other words, the local church is dead without the Spirit. So what is it that the Spirit does that's so vitally important? And there's a lot of things we could say here, but I want to make two big observations from Acts chapter 2 on this. The first is that the Holy Spirit empowers the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. The first is the Holy Spirit empowers the good news of the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. The first thing that Peter does after he receives the Spirit is to start explaining who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and why his listeners, who it's important to note here are at this point Jewish monotheists, why they should begin worshiping Jesus as God and Savior. 
At the end of verse 13, some people, it says, were mocking because they heard all this babble of languages and they thought that these people were drunk. And I, actually, I love how Peter addresses this charge, right? If, if you look down at verse, thing, verse 14, he says, uh, Peter standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, saying, Men of Judea uh, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known and give ear to my words. Then he says, verse 15, For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only about the third hour. It's at 9 a.m. You know, Peter had been around Jerusalem. He knows when the bars are open. He's like, you know, look, it's too early in the morning for anyone to be drunk. I mean, if you thought the, the liquor laws in Kansas were strict, try Jerusalem in the first century. He says, no. Okay, look, it, it's too early for someone to be drunk. It's 9 a.m. And then he goes on, after clearing up that misunderstanding, he goes on and begins to explain what's happening and how it points to and is explained by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And again, we don't have time this morning to look closely at all 25 verses of Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2, but I do want to notice several things here. First, this moment of speaking in tongues is not sort of a private prayer language, um, but is speaking in known languages for the sake of making Christ known. So in this particular instance, um, they're speaking in known language that these other people can understand. Now, Paul, the apostle in 1 Corinthians 14, will talk about a language that seems, a prayer uh, speaking in tongues that seems to not be a human language that knows, but that's, that's for another sermon. That's not for today. Um, second, that Peter's proclamation of the gospel, this is the second thing to notice here, is rooted in the scriptures. We can't miss this, that Peter's proclamation of the gospel, of, of who Jesus is, is rooted in the scriptures. Notice this in verse 16 of Acts chapter 2. He says, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then again in verse 25, he quotes David from Psalm 16. And then again in verse 34, he quotes David again, this time from Psalm 110. You see, here's the thing. If you want to understand who Jesus is and the significance of his life, you have to read the Bible. All faithful proclamation of the gospel is rooted in the scriptures. And this is why we teach from this book every Sunday morning at Christ Community when you come here. I don't have anything to say to you unless it comes from this book. If we want to understand who Jesus is, we have to look at the Bible. This is why we're doing open here to develop this habit of daily Bible reading. This is why um, reading the Bible has again and again been shown in studies to be the primary catalyst for spiritual growth. Do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to help other people know Jesus? You have to go to the Bible. You see, after Jesus ascends, and he's only been ascended for a short time here, immediately after Jesus ascends, the primary way in which Jesus, we have access to Jesus is through the scriptures. That we immediately go to the written word to order to know and understand the living word, Jesus. Third, the Spirit-empowered proclamation of the good news about Jesus is, is contextualized to the audience. Let me say that again. The Spirit-empowered proclamation of the good news about Jesus is con contextualized to the audience. What does that mean? Well, it means that Peter knows he doesn't speak in a vacuum. He's not just speaking to some person generally. You know, he's speaking to the specific people who are there. Notice he, he calls them men of Judea, men of Israel. He calls them brothers. Peter crafts his message in a way that is uniquely suited for his audience. For Jews in Jerusalem, there to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, whenever we're faithfully proclaiming the gospel, it's, it's never about just speaking generally, but saying, who is our audience? How do we, we articulate the gospel in a way that makes sense in that culture? 
Fourth, the Spirit-empowered proclamation of the good news about Jesus shows the glory and identity of Jesus. Whenever the Spirit is empowering proclamation about the good news of Jesus, it always shows the glory and identity of Jesus. Look at verse 36 in Acts chapter 2. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That's his identity, right? Lord and Christ's identity. And that this Jesus whom you crucified. That's his glory. Jesus shows forth his glory supremely in this crucifixion. You see, the conclusion of Peter's message is that Jesus is Lord, that he is God, that he is ruler over all, and that Jesus is the Christ, which means Messiah. He is the promised anointed one. He's the savior of the world. And his glory is seen most supremely in his crucifixion on the cross. See, when you hear someone preaching or teaching, one way to know that that preaching and teaching is being empowered by the Spirit is that it glorifies Jesus, that it points to his identity, that it points to his glory and his identity as revealed in the cross of Christ. So what does the Spirit empower the church to do? He empowers the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. That's the first thing we said, but there's a second thing here. What's the second? The Spirit empowers a Christ-centered, caring, multiplying community. Christ-centered, caring, multiplying community. If you look down to the the final verses of chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, the Spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel doesn't just create an isolated group of individuals who like Jesus, but, but not one another, who like Jesus, but not the church. No, it creates a community. You notice in verses 42 and 43, the, the People devote themselves to teaching and learning about Jesus, to prayer and to fellowship with one another. In verses 44 and 45, they, they're sharing with everyone who has need. They're caring for one another. They share meals and friendship and worship with one another. In verse 46. In verse 47, it's also a community that's being multiplied. They welcome people into the community as the Lord is adding to their numbers daily. You know, another way you could say these two things of of spirit-empowered proclamation and spirit-empowered community is you could talk about them in the language of a caring family, of multiplying disciples. You know, our mission statement at Christ Community is to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. And that mission statement is rooted in and drawn from Acts chapter 2. And this is how we've based our identity as a church, to be a caring family of multiplying disciples. The local church is the place and the people where and through whom the Spirit empowers the good news about Jesus to be proclaimed and the place where those who embrace that good news are knitted together in a community that is empowered by the Spirit to sacrificially care for one another, to serve for one another, to multiply by continuing to proclaim the gospel. So this brings us to our last point. We can only be that kind of community that kind of church if we have received the Spirit. So how does that happen? How do we receive the Spirit? And that's the final thing we need to look at here is how we receive the Spirit. Well, again, we see it right here in the text. If you look at Acts 2.37, we see the people's response to Peter's message. We actually read it earlier on the screen together. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That's us. That's the Gentiles. Those who are far away. All who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. How do we receive the Spirit? Peter says it's really simple. Not easy, but it's really simple. It says, by ceasing to trust in ourselves and our own achievements to build our identity and our hope and instead looking to Jesus alone for our identity and for our hope and our only chance of having our sins forgiven. This is what it is to repent. It is to stop trusting myself and to start trusting in Jesus. And when we repent, the text says that two things happen. Our sins are forgiven and we'll receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may be wondering here this morning, now, I, I've, I've trusted Christ. I've done that. I've put my faith in Christ. Um, you know, have I received the Spirit, or, or do I need to continue to receive the Spirit? Is this something that happens over and over again, or how does that work? And, and the answer is, is no. When you receive the Spirit, when you trust Christ, and the Spirit is, is given to you, and it doesn't always, in fact, it probably rarely comes with, with kind of the moment that we see here in Acts 2. Again, we're talking about the overall rather than the specific pattern. You're probably not speaking in all kinds of foreign languages when you came to know Christ. But when you receive the Spirit, that's not something that can be revoked. It's a seal that's placed on you. It's a permanent thing. But... For those of us who have the Spirit, even though we can't lose Him, we can grieve the Spirit. We can't oppose His work in our lives. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we have both those pieces there that you can grieve Him. You're sealed with Him. He's not going anywhere, but you can still grieve him. And what, what is it that grieves the Spirit? Well, in the context of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul lists a number of things. Lying to one another, anger, stealing, rotten, talk, bitterness, rage, brawling, slander. These things and others like them grieve the Holy Spirit in the sense that they oppose the very direction of his reconciling, unifying, new creation work in the believer. So as believers, we can't lose the Spirit but we can oppose his work. We can go the opposite direction of what he's trying to do and accomplish in us both individually and collectively as a congregation. So how do we escape that pattern? Well, it's, it's the same thing. The way to escape that pattern of grieving the Spirit is, is to repent, to return and look to Jesus, to Jesus, the only one who has saved us, the only one who can save us. You see, the Spirit always points us to Jesus. A church that is obsessed with the person and work and gospel of Jesus Christ is a church that is filled with the Spirit. The Spirit never puts the focus on himself. Pastor uh, Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. I love what he writes. He says, exulting in Christ, focusing on Christ, speaking much of and singing often of Christ is not evidence of the Spirit's dismissal, but of the Spirit's work he says, if the symbol of the church is the cross and not the dove, that is because the Spirit would have it that way. And then he quotes J.I. Packer. This is one of my favorite J.I. Packer quotes. J.I. Packer says, the Spirit's message to us is never look at me, never listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look to Jesus, see his glory, listen to him, hear his word, go to him, have life 
get to know him, taste his gift of joy and peace. So this morning, whether you have never trusted Christ before, or you find yourself in a place of, of knowing that you've grieved the Spirit, or, or maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're walking with the Spirit, but the Spirit's message, whether, no matter which one of those camps you fall into this morning, it's the same. It's look to Jesus and continue to look to Jesus in repentance and faith. The Spirit is always pointing us to Jesus. Jay Packer uses the, the metaphor of a spotlight. You never look into a spotlight. You look at what the spotlight is pointing to. This morning, no matter where you're at, if you've never trusted Christ, you're, you're struggling in your walk with Christ, you're, you're exalting and loving your walk with Christ, the Spirit's message is look to Jesus. Love Jesus. Be like Jesus. And so this morning as we come to the communion table, we come to the table in repentance and faith. Our coming to the communion table this morning, it's an inactive statement that declares to everyone here, when you, when you step out of that pew and you walk to the communion table, you're saying to everyone here, you're saying at least three things. <laughs> One, I am a sinner. <laughs> Two, I desperately want to be free of my sin. And three, I recognize Jesus is the only hope for that happening. He's the only hope of forgiveness. To receive communion is an act of repentance and faith that the Spirit uses to point us to Jesus and the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's a constant reminder of the finished work of Christ on the cross that declares we are forgiven. And we celebrate communion as a tangible reminder every week here, as a, as a reminder of the good news of the gospel, that our sins have been forgiven by Jesus' finished work on the cross. In communion, the gospel is proclaimed to our senses. We get to taste and touch the good news about Jesus. You don't have to be a member of Christ's community to participate in, in communion with us. All followers of Jesus are welcome at his table. Of course, if you'd rather, you can use this time either to pray or to, to receive prayer or both. You can receive communion and then go to receive prayer. We'll always have people available uh, here to re pray with you during communion. And when you do come to the table, though, gather around in groups of four or five and take the bread, dip it into the, the bowl, and then partake together as a group. And there's four communion stations around the room. There's two here in the front and there's two in back. The communion station here in the back has gluten-free uh, communion elements available. And when you go to receive communion, just exit out of the side aisles and then kind of return to your seat in the middle aisle. Especially if you're newer, you'll probably notice, man, these pews are kind of narrow. Uh, it's absolutely true. We're used to having to climb over one another and bump into one another a little bit, getting in and out. Um, so don't, don't feel bad about that. So take your time this morning. Come and enjoy the meal which Jesus has given us, the meal that the Spirit uses to point us to Christ. Come to the table when you're ready. Actually, before that, <laughs> almost forgot always want to remind us of what Jesus said. Jesus, on the night of his burial, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he gave it to his disciples. He said, take the, this is my body. And after this, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We do this in remembrance of him. Come when you're ready to the Lord's table.